Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 28. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who, became, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the, the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what, and what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a, of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oaths, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peggy, for reading it so well. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is uh, John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar at St. Jude's, and 
a little bit puffed because I had to, I had to do a quick announcement at our Carlton campus. Uh, and then you all parked really close to church, which was uh, <laughs> understandable because you're keen and here on time, which meant I was about a kilometre away and then did my morning fitness here. So I was going to take my breath and slow down before I pass out. Uh, we do have a really good and exciting passage before us, but I just want to do a very quick announcement, the same announcement that I did at Carlton this morning. Uh, our church over the past five or six years has been through a number of ups and downs. Uh, you've got a new vicar, which I hope is working all out, uh, all out for you okay. Uh, but also, uh, both this building and our Carlton building had some major uh, building works, particularly at Carlton. They were not allowed to, uh, able to meet there until 2019. And then, of course, in 2020, we all know what happened, and we've all been kind of pushed online and doing all those things for a couple of years. Now, it would seem, under God, that things are stable. Under God. Uh, and so we thought now's a good time to think, uh, how do we as a church look to move forward together? What, what kind of big plans can we make uh, under his sovereignty and prayerfully? Now, I know that Parkville have done some really good thinking in this already, and that's going to be incorporated into this thinking. But I wanted to kind of do a church-wide survey, just seeing where people are at, what things do people value about being part of the church, what kind of new initiatives or things could we look at doing uh, under God to build his kingdom? Uh, and so, I mean, the staff have got some ideas, the parish council have got some ideas, but we'd love to engage you in this whole process, as this is a church-wide thing. And so we have a questionnaire. Uh, I will send an email out to you uh, during the week. It'll uh, probably be in the, the Parkville uh, Facebook group as well. It, it's 14 questions long, and half of those are multi-guess, so it actually is quite short. Uh, according to SurveyMonkey, it should take between 7 and 10 minutes. Uh, it took me about seven or eight minutes to do, so I don't think it should take you too much longer. You're all smarter than me. But can I really encourage you to do that? We really want to understand where people are at, what you value, so prayerfully we can think about what's the best way forward together as God's people. Uh, I'll flag that again in the next coming weeks, but just wanted to say, if that turns up in your inbox, get excited. Uh, don't, don't log on now and do it during the sermon. Uh, do it afterwards. Uh, we have before us this morning a great passage, uh, Hebrews 7. So let's, let's get into it. Uh, by the way, this is our final week uh, in Hebrews for this year. We will actually return next year to pick up the story in chapter 8. Uh, but Hebrews, as we've been seeing, is, is a letter addressed to, we're not exactly sure who, but we know these are urban Christians with a strong Jewish heritage. Uh, they're in a city somewhere. It mentions city and city life more than any other New Testament letter. Uh, it's clear that they live in a pluralistic society where there are different beliefs competing. And it's also really clear that as a result of that, they're under pressure to walk away from being a Christian. And so the author to the Hebrews writes this. It's really kind of like a sermon. If you read it from beginning to end, it's like 30 minutes long and it's got stories and encouragements. And it's saying, hang in there, look to Jesus, he is better. Hang in there, look to Jesus, he is better. And they're great words for us, living in a city with lots of different pluralistic views where the pressure may be to walk away. It's the same message to us. Hang in there, look to Jesus, he is better. And particularly the focus of chapter 7 is this aspect about Jesus. Take comfort because Jesus is your perfect high priest. Take comfort because Jesus is your perfect high priest. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews goes to great lengths to emphasise just how important it is that Jesus is our high priest. That the word kind of priest or priesthood 
is mentioned in this one chapter 18 times, if you were counting along. That's a lot of emphasis. Now, you might say, well, how on earth can Jesus, as, as a great high priest, give me comfort? Look, I understand Jesus as my saviour and my Lord. And those things give me comfort. And they do, don't they? There is great comfort in Jesus as saviour. You can understand the beauty and the, and the peace that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. That you stand righteous before God. And there's great comfort in knowing Jesus as the sovereign king, the Lord of all. Knowing that there will be justice. He will fix all wrongs. He will raise up the widow and the oppressed. That, doesn't that give you great comfort? So what's the comfort then is on having Jesus as your priest? Well, fortunately, the answer is in the text. It's in uh, verse 25. Therefore he, that's Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives, and here's the key little word, to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. And this is the key to unlocking this passage, is that Jesus, as our priest, our high priest, always intercedes for you. This is part of his saving work. This is why he gives us great comfort. Now, one of the challenges, of course, we don't usually think of priests in this way in our culture. In the culture of the Hebrews, there were priests everywhere. But now we kind of think it is a priest, they're kind of some religious person. But it's hard to know specifically what they do. The old joke is a priest works one day a week, right? Or as uh, less flattering, uh, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. <laughs> I'm not sure why you laugh there. That's right. <laughs> now, I actually come from a family of priests. Uh, I'm, of course, a priest. Uh, my dad is a priest, but he's now a bishop. My grandfather, my father-in-law, my sister's father-in-law, my sister's brother-in-law, my cousin. That's just the current generation. If you go back through history, there are a whole lot of other Anglican priests all the way back to 1798 in Australia. It is a family. It's a family business, right? <laughs> you want a priest? I'll get you a priest. <laughs> and it means that, that if you are the son of a priest or a priest, you get asked weird questions. And people assume weird things about you. Uh, one example is my, uh, my father-in-law, Laurie, who was a priest in a country town. And he would often have to go visit smaller little country sites to do services. And, and he was always often running late because it's a long way to go. And, and because you're running late, of course, you have to uh, go fast in the name of the Lord to achieve, you know, to be with God's people. You're on a mission from God after all, right? So it's okay. And he would hang his robes on the side of the, on the passenger seat on the side because he knew that what would happen is, as often would be in a country town, the police would, would want to know why you were travelling at such great speed. And uh, Laurie, my father-in-law, would point to the robes and they'd say, God bless you, Father. Put a good word in with the big man upstairs for me. And off, off he'd go. I'm not, I'm, not condemned, I'm not saying this is the right look. Don't, <laughs> I'm going to buy some robes on the Eastern Freeway. <laughs> I don't think it works in Victoria anymore. The point why was there was still a cultural idea that priests somehow could put a good word in with the big guy upstairs or, or intercede. That's the kind of the idea there. They could intercede on behalf of whoever they were. That idea is sort of there in the background about a priest. 
But I wonder if that's how you see uh, Mike and I's role, that we're kind of interceding for you. I think we probably don't necessarily think of that with our priests in your church. But that was the job of the Old Testament priest, particularly the high priest. They would represent the people before God and intercede on behalf of the people before God and saying, God, let, let, me, let me represent the people and do business with you, sacrifice for sin so that the people might be in a good relationship. That was the role of the high priest. Now, it's a little hard sometimes to understand culturally, but what's interesting about that word intercede is it's, it's kind of has a legal aspect to it as well. And this is where we might understand it a little better culturally. A lawyer intercedes on your behalf, either in a legal dispute or in a court case, right? And it's a similar idea. We, you could go to court and you could choose, if you wish, to, to represent yourself. Uh, there are lots of YouTube clips of people trying to do that. Uh, there's TV shows. It, it's great TV. It's terrible reality. Why is it terrible reality? Because a lawyer is much better equipped to intercede on your behalf. Not only does a lawyer, may well, she may well know the law way better than you know the law, but more importantly, your lawyer is on your side. It's not just the knowledge, it's they're representing you with your best interests. They're arguing your case. They're interceding for you. This is my client. They have been wronged. They deserve what is right. Here's the reason why. And so the author of the Hebrews is saying that that kind of a picture, uh, the priest, the kind of lawyer that we kind of have, we can kind of understand both. Don't take heart. That is what Jesus is doing for you at this moment. He is saying, this one is mine. He or she belongs to me. And so take comfort. Now, he gets there in the end in verse 25, but he has all these verses about this guy called Melchizedek in the opening 24 verses, right? So why does he spend so long getting to verse 25? Well, uh, we'll go through these verses. They can actually be difficult to understand. We need to kind of acknowledge that. But it's actually worth working through the arguments he's making there briefly because they build the case. He's trying to build the case with the Hebrews. This is why Jesus is the best the most amazing high priest, and take comfort. Now, once again, it's a different argument if he was speaking to the church in Parkville, yes, but he's not writing to the church in Parkville. So we need to kind of put some cultural glasses on and understand what's going on. So let's have a look at the text together before we get to verse 25. Now, in verses 1 and 2, what he's doing is recounting the story of Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. If you want to kind of read the the previous, you know, the previous episodes, go to Genesis 14, have a read. Uh, and Abraham has defeated some Mesopotamian kings that had attacked Sodom, and, he's, and they've carried away uh, 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 some, sorry, some residents as slaves, including his nephew Lot. Sorry, this is what the Mesopotamian kings have done. So Abraham, Abraham takes his army to kind of, kind of take on these bad guys, and he wins, and he disperses the army, uh, and he rescues the prisoners, as well as all the plunder of war. So Abraham's coming back victorious. And on the way back from battle, he meets this mysterious character called Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem and the, and the priest of, the, of God Most High. 
Now, by the way, Salem, or like the word shalom, means peace. Uh, and so that's another, um, the, the city of peace is probably a reference to Jerusalem. And this Melchizedek kind of mysterious character does two things, you'll notice in the text. He blesses Abraham, firstly, and secondly, he receives a tithe, a gift of 10%. He gets 10% of all, all the bounty and all the things that have been won. And which is similar because when you go later through the Old Testament, the priests receive how much they receive? 10%. So you kind of, they would make all these connections intrinsically, but we've got to kind of do a bit more work. So the author uses this story and the mention of Melchizedek, who's also mentioned, by the way, in Psalm 110, which is like a, a huge psalm about God's promised king. And particularly verse 4 of Psalm 110 refers to Melchizedek again. And he wants to say, look, using this kind of Melchizedek character, let me show you how Jesus is then better than every other high priest. And so firstly, notice in verse 3, he compares the Son of God with Melchizedek. He says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. He, that is Melchizedek, remains a priest forever. Now, what, what on earth does that mean? Well, we need to kind of understand uh, the way Jewish people argued and gave arguments and had theological discussions on their Facebook pages. Uh, the, one of the ideas was, if something was not mentioned explicitly in a scriptural text, this happened, then you couldn't assume that it did happen. So the, the kind of anything that was unknown, you couldn't just assume common sense. You're allowed to, in their rules of kind of theological engagement, kind of make a point. And so what he says is, he says, look, because Melchizedek's parents and lineage and birth and death aren't actually mentioned in Genesis 14, he is, from our argument, without beginning of days or end of life. There's no mention of it. So we, we, we can't talk about it. Who knows? Therefore, like the Son of God, like Jesus, who is eternal, he, he's the same kind of a priest. Now, we might say, look, that doesn't really work for us as an argument. That's okay. He's not writing to modern Westerners. He's writing to first century Jewish background Christians. And so that's an argument that would hold water. Okay, you, that, that's, that's a kind of a rhetoric device. We don't know about, about Melchizedek's birth or afterwards, so we can't say that he's not eternal. Therefore, in the same way, Jesus is eternal. Slightly confusing, but it would make sense to those readers. Secondly, we see that Melchizedek is greater than the Levite priests who are under Aaron. This is in verses 4 to 10. And once again, there's an argument through these verses. And I'll just step you through the argument quickly. He says, Abraham paid, the argument is this, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, which proves that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Simple rule, whoever pays a tithe to someone else, the person you're paying it to, they're the more important person. That's the kind of the logic of that step. Uh, secondly, the priest that came from the tribe of Levi even though Levi's not born yet, by the way, let alone Aaron, the Jewish belief was that the seed of that person lives inside an ancestor. And you see that in verse 9. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. 
Are you following me so far? Because he's kind of part of that family. His family's paying a tithe to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek's better than Levi and Aaron and the priests. Therefore, thirdly, therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the Levite priesthood because Levite's family had paid money to Melchizedek. Now, once again, it's an argument we think, well, it doesn't really convince me. That's okay. It's, not, it's, it's, it's making an argument for this Jewish culture which says these are the things that make something more important. And then thirdly, in verses 11 to 17, we say that Jesus is a better high priest because he lives forever. Now, once again, it's a fairly involved argument, so I'll just, I'll just step through the five points of this argument. So this is good for your lawyers, right? This is why we need a good lawyer. It's simply like this. Firstly, uh, if God's plan could be accomplished through the Levitical priesthood, if that's the first point, then secondly, then God wouldn't have spoken through Psalm 110 about an eternal priest from a different order. So if the Levite priesthood would work, he wouldn't have talked about another type of priesthood in Psalm 110. That's the first kind of step in the argument. And therefore, because Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, which was the traditional tribe where the priests come from, that's where my family would have come from, right? All priests. Look, it says there in verse 14, it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Judah. It's a bit of a dead end. Not really much happening in Judah, it would seem. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's like, you know, it's the Hufflepuff. It's not the pure blood Slytherin house, right? And because Jesus has an indestructible life, that is, he's declared a priest forever, as did Melchizedek, that is, his death's not mentioned anywhere, therefore we assume he's kept going, therefore Jesus qualifies as a priest in Melchizedek's order. He's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, yet he's a priest forever. Ah, that's the order of Melchizedek, special type of priest. A better type of priest. Verse 17, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, you, are you confused at the deeper level? Are you still with me though? So, seeing vague nods, no one's fallen asleep yet. Good, we're getting there. We're getting there. The last, the last, the last few to go. We're getting there. Uh, therefore, fourthly, Jesus therefore guarantees a better covenant than the other priesthood does. 718 to 22. Um, what the author does here is he looks at the law, the Old Testament law, and the covenant, and it's made to Abraham, by the way, and he'll actually pick up these themes uh, later in the book. In fact, next year you'll see how he kind of investigates these more. But he picks up the, he's picking up a statement he made in verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. What he's saying is because the original priests under Aaron, the Aaron priests, the Levite priests, they came under the Old Testament law, but Melchizedek is under a whole different system. Therefore, it can't be under the Old Testament law. There's got to be something else that this, this, this priesthood sits under. And so verse 10, he says, the former regulation, that is the former law, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. That's the Levitical priesthood. So he's saying, look, the Old Testament law, the priesthood, was actually unable to bring people to God because it actually made nothing perfect. It had to be done again and again and again. It didn't ever work. He says, and therefore, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The Melchizedek one will work. 
What's he saying? It's a better covenant, a better hope. Why? Because it's not through law, but through an oath. That is through God's promise, which is better than a law. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Once again, it's a slightly complicated argument, but he's saying the law and the Old Testament priests who Aaron didn't work. This is a better version. It's eternal. It's promised by God. Therefore, it's better. And fourthly, then, uh, fifthly, and finally, before we get to chapter 20, uh, verse 25, finally, uh, the author compares the mortality of the, the Aaron priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, with Jesus, the eternal Son of God. He's building on a theme. Verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests, that is, of the, the, the Levi priests, the human priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus is forever, he has a permanent priesthood. You see, see the contrast? It's really obvious, right? St. Jude's, by the way, has something called an incumbency committee. So if I get hit by a tram on the way, on the way home today... The incumbency committee works out who's going to be the next, not high priest, vicar, in this case, of St. Jude's, because I'm a mortal person. Even if I'm not hit by a tram today, I'm not going to be around in 120 years' time. You may well be. I won't be. There is an inbuilt failure in the priesthood system in that the priests just keep dying. And a dead priest is not a very efficient priest. Sure, the sermons are shorter, right? <laughs> you might think, well, might be worth a go. But they can't intercede, they can't pray, they can't lead. They're good for fertiliser. That's it. That's, that's the best you can do. You need a living priest to intercede for you. And so he uses all these arguments, and therefore he builds up to verse 25. He's building his case, he's building his case, he's building case. And he says, therefore, which is always a good sign that he's finally got round to the point he wanted to tell us, right? This is what I want to say to you in light of all that Melchizedek stuff. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is, this is the key point he wants us to take home. So the Melchizedek stuff's interesting. Hopefully you've learned something. (laughs) But but this is the key verse that you need to walk away with. Verse 25. Jesus is the great high priest who is able to save us completely because he always intercedes for you. So let's look at those, those two points. Jesus is the high priest who is able to save us completely. By the way, we need to understand a bit about what the great high priest actually does as opposed to the everyday priests. Uh, One of the great roles of the high priest was on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, uh, the priest had to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, right at the centre of the temple, the place where God was said to dwell. And once a year he would go in and it was an ornate, uh, uh, over-the-top, Preparation. Uh, they had to get dressed uh, four different changes of clothing, uh, five immersions in a ritual bath. And they had to offer particular sacrifices for themselves to, to kind of ex- expiate their own sin and for the people. 
And, and the priest would go in dressed in an ephod which contained these gold and precious gems, which was worth more than all the other treasure in Israel. To say this is the most glorious thing coming into the presence of God. And they would have a rope tied around them. Why? Because if they made a mistake, that's the end of that high priest. And no one's going to go in there. It's like walking into a nuclear reaction. And so they would drag the priest out. Can you imagine the amount of anxiety that a high priest would go for as he would prepare once a year? This is it. Shaking and trembling, aware of your own sin and mortality as they tied the rope around you, just aware that this could go terribly wrong, but knowing how important it was because you were making intercession on behalf of the people before the holy and righteous God. That's the high priest's job. That idea of atonement, it's just... It's just a putting together of three English words. It really is. That's the etymology of the word. At one meant. Things that are apart, things that are separated by a thick curtain because of human sin and failure and the holiness of God are brought as one. It literally means at one meant. But of course, there is an intrinsic problem that the author of the Hebrews has highlighted about these priests. They're mortal because they are sinful. Unlike the high priest who offers sacrifices for himself and his people. So he's got to do both right. It says that Jesus in verse 26 offers a sacrifice only for his, pe- only for his people, not for himself. Why? Verse 26. He is holy and blameless, pure and set apart from sinners. Big difference. Unlike the human high priests who offer ineffective animal sacrifices, what does it do in verse, 20, in verse 17? Unlike the, other, sorry, verse 27, unlike other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered what? What does it say? Himself. What a radically different sacrifice. And so what we have in Jesus is not just the one perfect high priest, but also the one perfect sacrifice. He's both high priest and sacrifice. Which means unlike the high priest sacrifices that had to happen again and again and again, Jesus' sacrifice is therefore a one-time affair. He can save completely. It is finished. They are Jesus' words on the cross. Now, why is that important? The the important thing here is, do you know that? Because I think often when we come to our sin and our guilt and our shame, it sometimes feels like it is mostly finished. That is, I'm a Christian and I know know I'm saved, but there are still some parts of my life that I, I think if Jesus really knew about them, he... There are some sins that perhaps he hasn't covered. By the way, he knows about them. (laughs) And he has dealt with them. And so come to the one, draw near to the one who is able to save completely. There is no part of your life for whom Christ has not died. 
There is no sin you have done for which Christ has not died. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, come to Christ knowing that. The one who intercedes, why? Because he is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest. And secondly, Jesus is always interceding for you. Know this. See, Jesus didn't sacrifice himself to bring us to the Father and then leave us there, like some kind of spiritual daycare, right? That's, that's not the way Jesus works. <laughs> You're not kind of snuck in the back door of heaven and, look, just don't talk too loudly. God might not notice that you're there. Just behave yourself. I've got you in on, the, on a special deal. Just, no. The wonderful truth is that it remains the eternal dignity of Jesus, the Son of God, to be our mediator, to be our go-between, to intercede for us. And so when we approach the Father, it's, it's only through Jesus, our great high priest, who pleads his own wounds on our behalf forever. Right now, at this moment, he always lives to intercede. He pleads your case before God as we speak. He hears your prayers. He acts on your behalf. There is no one better. Think about it, right? Jesus is part of the Trinitarian Godhead. Incomprehensible, right? At the same time, he knows exactly what it's like to be human. Just like you and me. With our frailties. As we saw earlier in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's why Jesus is the best and ultimate high priest. He's faced all the stress and temptation that this life offers. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to suffer, to be tempted, to, to face despair and rejection. He's the one who, who cried, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is our great high priest. He is God, transcendent, and he is God who is imminent with us. He is merciful and he is faithful. Which means, brothers and sisters, you have both a saving access to God and a sympathetic access to God. And this is only made possible because Jesus is and remains our high priest. This means you can draw near to him even in the toughest situations. When you feel like, I am alone in this, no one understands, this is awful, it may well feel that way, but brother and sister, let me assure you, you are never alone. Never alone. In Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is facing execution for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And they're about to stone him, which was the way of execution. And he sees something and then he prays, Father, do not hold this against them. Forgive them. 
What would give a man such courage and peace facing a, a crowd that is baying for his death and about to kill him? That is a high-stress uh, situation. He's by himself. He's been accused by human court of blasphemy. They have that, the rocks in their hands about to throw it at him. But what does Stephen see? Verse 55, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing is interceding. That's what he sees. He sees Jesus as his great high priest. Standing as his advocate. The very moment that this earthly court is condemning him, standing in accusation, the only court that actually matters was commending him. It didn't matter what this earthly court said because he knew the verdict in the heavenly court. He knew who his advocate was. He knew who his great high priest was. And so in that moment, he was able to have what is called the courage of grace. I don't know how you throw away a line, but the courage of grace, knowing that I have a great high priest who intercedes for me even in this moment of my own death. There I can face anything. Because Jesus is forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Brothers and sisters, draw near to your great high priest. Amen.